welcome to the STEM Economy with your host, Matt Bender. The verdict is in. Sam Bankman-Fried is guilty. Folks, welcome to Scam Economy. I am your host, Matt Binder. And on this episode of the show, we are going to talk all about the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, better known as SBF, the founder of FTX, and how he has just been found guilty of financial fraud and faces potentially more than 100 years in prison. This was a huge trial for the cryptocurrency industry because FTX was one of the biggest crypto exchanges until they collapsed roughly one year ago. Now on this episode, we do go a little bit into the background of FTX and what SBF was doing, but this show has also had a number of episodes on FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried. So if you want a little bit more details to everything prior to the trial, you could check those episodes out at scameconomy.com or youtube.com slash Binder. But now let's get into this very special SBF trial episode of Scam Economy. And joining me now to discuss all of this, it's Molly White, friend of the show, uh, writer of the Molly White newsletter, and of course, the creator of the uh, best cryptocurrency resource on the web. Web3 is going great. Molly, thank you so much for joining me on Scam Economy. Thanks for having me back. Uh, it's it, I'm so happy you're here because you've been you know you've been um, pretty much my resource for the entirety of the Sam Bankman-Fried trial, and um, you know we we were talking a little bit before we started here about how you know for, for such a big trial it, it sort of just came and went and it was a month long and um, you know I, I was talking about how I'm sure for you who is covering every little thing of every day of the trial it didn't feel like it probably didn't go as fast for you but I think like uh, people were expecting like some big because usually with these big trials there is some sort of big day in court like like one that gets all the headlines and I, I mm-hmm. feel like that never really happened here. And I don't want to get ahead of myself, but because uh, it is obviously a big trial. But uh, I guess in a way to sort of just wrap it all up, like uh, up front for people who maybe just want a quick summary, like Sam Bankman Fried is going to jail for a long time. And they took really quickly to, to come to that verdict. <laughs> yeah, it did. Um, yeah, there wasn't, you know, the days of jury deliberation where everyone was wondering what was going on in there and you know, why couldn't they come to a verdict? It took them like four and a half hours to reach a verdict after only four or five weeks of the trial. And the trial itself came within a year of the collapse of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange. And so it feels like everything has just been on fast forward to some extent. Um, and yeah, I think it was a little anticlimactic for some people to see, you know, there were these really big moments that I think people expected, like, you know, some of his co-conspirators taking the stand and then him ultimately taking the stand himself and, of course, the verdict. But I think, you know, it also just went so quickly that people were almost like blindsided by it. They were expecting to have to wait longer to to understand what would happen. 
Right. And what what's sort of even more stunning about this too was all, all the voices just a year ago who were out there saying like, oh, SBF's going to get away with it. Nothing's happening because, you know, FTX collapsed pretty much a year ago, almost to the date. Um, and there were weeks where SBF was sort of just parading around, uh, sort of just flaunting his failure. It was very weird behavior. It was like almost like he was like patting himself on the back for handling the collapse of FTX the way he was handling it. Like he was doing um, uh, uh, panels and, and Zooming and Skyping or doing video calls to whatever podcast or live stream would sit down with him. And people who I guess weren't as plugged into the crypto world thought like he was like gonna gonna get around it and there were conspiracy theories about how there was like oh he paid off all the right politicians right and elon musk was out there tweeting how oh there's not even gonna be an investigation because he's bought him he's bought his way out of it um and you know and and then on the on the flip side you had like the vcs and crypto investors uh some of which were like you know i'm not so sure sbf is guilty i think he's telling yeah. the truth when he's saying he you know it just collapsed naturally and he wasn't doing anything fraudulent uh like like the the it it is amazing how fast-tracked it was to just a year ago people were saying nothing's gonna happen to him and now, uh, and people should be clear, he, he he was facing seven charges, right? In this trial, he actually has another five charges still coming down the pipe. But yes, uh, it was seven charges in this trial. <laughs> so I'm sorry, misinformation, everyone here that I've been saying SBF is guilty on all charges. Clearly, SBF is going to get away with it in the next trial. He's going to he's going <laughs> to well, it's been fun to watch the goalposts move because those conspiracy theories are still alive and well. And it has been, you know, it went from there's not going to be an investigation to he's not going to be found guilty. Now they're going to now they're saying, oh, he's not going to be sentenced to anything significant. And then there are also now conspiracy theories that he will be pardoned by Joe Biden. So we're really getting the whole range of uh, possible outcomes here as far as how the justice system is corrupt and Sam Bankman-Fried has bought his way to freedom. Listen, <laughs> SBF can't go to prison, Jack. <laughs> that's, that's Joe Biden. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know. It's it, It'll make your brain hurt a little bit to try to go down that rabbit hole, but it is a little bit fascinating to watch. Yeah, I mean... It's it you know he's going away for what is likely the rest of his life. Like it it seems like you know what's like the minimum he could get here, like thirty years or something, right? So so like he's facing a potential hundred plus years in prison. Yeah, so there's no mandatory minimum. Um, the headlines about 115 years in prison or whatever are just like adding together all of the possible maximum sentences. And that's not really likely to be what happens either, just because, you know, some of them might run consecutive consecutively and things like that. But several, I think five of the seven charges have a 20 year maximum sentence on them. And with wire fraud, there are all these sort of um, enhancements that you can get to the sentencing based on things like the amount of money that was stolen and the number of victims that were involved. 
And so Sam Bankman-Fried kind of like maxes out the sentencing chart to some extent. Like he gets all the way up to the most points that you can possibly have on this sentencing chart that's used by the judge to try to establish his sentence. And so it's really kind of anyone's guess how many years he might get. Um, I've been wildly guessing with no, absolutely no legal experience to back this up that you know, 10 years is likely the minimum he would see. And it's much more likely, I think, that he would be facing 20, 30, something like that, which, you know, he's he's 30. So that could be, a you know, a substantial amount of the rest of his life in federal prison. Right. I saw people sort of uh, uh, compare it maybe even to like a, a Bernie Madoff type yeah. situation. I mean, obviously, Bernie Madoff a lot older when he went to uh, right. uh, prison, but uh it makes it probably worse for SBF in that regard, uh, how long he'll be. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, yeah, it's hard to say, honestly. I think we'll all probably just be surprised no matter what when the sentence comes out. But Right. So so let's, uh, you know, let's rewind, I guess, a little bit. I guess I got ahead of myself because I wanted to just talk about I, I, what I really wanted to do is talk about all of those idiots who <laughs> I was going to get away with it. That was my goal for jumping into this. But uh I guess let's rewind a little bit. And so for someone who's tuning in and they've missed, geez, probably the at least half a dozen episodes I've done on FTX, um, can, can you just sort of break down what landed Sam Bankman-Fried in trouble? What was he doing that, uh, you know, has him going away to prison for what is likely decades? So there was a lot going on, uh, but I think sort of the core issue was that Sam Bankman-Fried had two cryptocurrency firms that he was running. There was Alameda Research, which was a trading, a cryptocurrency trading firm that he had started first. And then several years later, he started this company called FTX, which was a cryptocurrency exchange. And what ultimately came out to have been happening was that Alameda Research was funneling customer funds out of the FTX exchange, which is supposed to just be holding on to them for the customers um, so that they could place trades with them. And Alameda Research was using those funds for its own purposes. So it was either trading with them or using them to get loans, you know, putting them up as collateral for loans. Um, there was just some wild spending happening on, you know, venture investments. There were loans being made to executives that were then being made, you know, sent through to political and charitable causes or used to buy real estate or give gifts to Sam Bankman-Fried's parents. You know, it was all sorts of stuff that you're absolutely not supposed to be doing with customer funds. Um, so that was sort of the core of it. And then there were a bunch of sort of tangential issues around lying to customers and investors and lenders and all sorts of things like that. Um, but the the biggest issue really was the misuse of customer funds. Right. And so when when things so, – so how did things collapse with Sam Bankman-Fried? He just got ahead of himself um, in terms of how much he was spending with customer funds and it just wasn't coming in. I guess it's also hit by – the various different um, failures uh, of various other companies, from lending companies to stable coins that had happened in the preceding months with uh, uh, Terra and, uh, you know, uh, uh, lending firms like um, uh, Celsius. Yeah. 
Yeah, so those things all impacted Alameda Research pretty dramatically. Um, you know, the market downturn in general caused a lot of their positions to become less profitable because they were overall sort of betting that crypto would continue to go up. Um, they had been taking loans from a lot of these lenders who eventually went under. And so there was a period of time in mid-June or so when a lot of their loans got called back and they had to dip even further into this pool of customer funds in order to repay lenders. Um, but things really fell apart in November, early November of 2022, when the crypto media outlet Coindesk published a leaked balance sheet that they had gotten their hands on that belonged to Alameda Research and showed that a substantial amount of Alameda's assets were somehow tied to FTX. So they were either this token called FTT, which is FTX's exchange token that they had created, or there were these things that were broadly called SAM coins, which were these tokens that were very closely affiliated with Sam Bankman-Fried in some way, like Solana, which he had been a very early investor in, or this token called Serum, which was related to this project that he had started. And so people realized that like the the whole foundation of Alameda Research was enormously fragile because as soon as FTX started to falter, FTT might falter, which would then cause panic in FTX, which would cause FTT to falter even more. And it, it's this thing in crypto that's usually referred to as a death spiral, where as soon as people begin to lose faith in the token or the exchange or the person running everything, things can go south really, really quickly. And so that's what kind of started to happen when that balance sheet was leaked. And then um, Changpeng Zhao, who is the CEO of Binance, which is FTX's largest competitor, also like a day or two later put out a tweet saying that they were going to sell all the FTT that they had, which was a substantial amount. It was like 25 million or something like that. It was a, a big number um, because they had had a stake in FTX, which FTX later bought out. And part of that buyout was denominated in FTT. And so they had this whole pile of FTT that they'd just been sitting on. And they threatened to sell it, which would even worsen, you know, even further worsen the um, potential market downturn in FTT. And so th this death spiral just became completely unsavable. Um, and people started to panic and withdraw funds from FTX. Um, lenders started to recall loans from Alameda. And eventually, the fact that they had spent all of this customer money that they were not supposed to be spending, that they were just supposed to be holding, came back to bite them because at some point they could no longer uh, meet the withdrawal requests that were coming in. Right. Um, so I just want to say uh, that Malik's coins and Matt's coins. We we had no investment in Sam's coins, so our <laughs> our cryptocurrencies of choice are still highly valuable. Do not sell. Uh... <laughs> Completely liquid. Yep, we're in good good standing here. Uh, but uh, after that, I want to ask ask. Um, so how how much uh, was lost when uh, from customers' funds when FTX could no longer pay out once everyone wanted to get out. 
Yeah, so it took a while to figure that out because a lot of the accounting there was pretty shoddy. But the number that most people have settled on is around $8 billion in assets were missing and had not been repaid. Um, at various points in time, that number had been more and had been less, but $8 billion was kind of the magic number for this trial. All right. And so uh, to, to, to go back again before the trial, so when FTX goes under, I recall they, they brought in the same guy who had to look over Enron's books. Well, what's the name yep. again? I forgot. John J. Ray the Third. Right. John J. Ray the Third, And so he ends up having to look through all of FTX's records, which apparently there were not much record keeping going on in the company, right? Like it was it's just a mess, apparently. Um, and it, like you said, it took them a while to even figure out uh, how much was missing, but not only how much was missing from like, just like uh, the normal failure of a company, how much was missing in terms of like, where did it go? Like what, like they didn't even know what some of where some of these funds had went. And also, I remember there was a a, a point where after the collapse, there was uh, uh, money flowing out of FTX's um, yeah. uh, like crypto wallets. Did they ever? What, what was that all about? Yeah, so it was a mess. I think that that is somewhat understating it. Um, you know, there's this period of time after John J. Ray III took over where they would be like, we just found more crypto wallets. This is great. You know, and they would be all excited about it. And people were like, what? Like, what do you mean you found them? But it was just that the accounting was so bad that they were just on this sort of investigative mission. But yes, so there was an incident. Um, it was, I think, the night that uh, FTX declared bankruptcy, which would have been November 11th. It was either that night or the day before. And Sam Bankman fried had stepped down and turned everything over to John J. Ray III. Um, and in the midst of all this chaos, as FTX is falling apart and everyone's panicking, suddenly people start to observe sort of massive outflows from some of these FTX wallets. And there was a lot of confusion over maybe this was someone trying to secure the funds and make sure they were in a safer place. But it turned out that there was actually quite a large hack on the night of the FTX bankruptcy or thereabouts, where several hundred million dollars was stolen from the cryptocurrency exchange. And to my knowledge, it has not been recovered. Interesting. Sorry, my dog is snoring. No, that's all good. What kind of dog? Uh, he's a mix. He's a pit bull, husky, German shepherd mix. Oh, wow. All right. I, listen, I, I totally understand falling asleep during a talk about FTX <laughs> and SBF. Uh, for yeah, us, not so much. Yeah, he doesn't find it as fascinating as I do. Yeah, yeah. For us, not so much. We're... We're losers who find this interesting and fascinating. But for yes. normies like your dog, I get it. <laughs> so, so you know, so when this is all going, uh, first of all, I, I, I had, I don't know why I thought maybe something had had come out of that. I didn't, I, because I, I, I had, I had not been following what happened to the that missing fund since like it, it happened. Now we're talking. It's we're, we're just a few days off of that being exactly a year ago. The funds being stolen. Um, 
I guess I guess one day we'll see that that money move around and some uh, whale tracker will. Uh... <laughs> well, it actually so it had been pretty dormant ever since it was stolen, and then just as the trial was beginning, it started to move around. Ah. So it's kind of interesting, but nothing as far as I know came of that. Uh, but who knows? I'm sure there's someone at the FBI watching it very closely or something like that. Right, right. Have to do another episode when they 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 crack that case. Right. Um, <laughs> So, all right. So now I guess we could fast forward to the trial because SBF uh, does get arrested. Uh, they they extradite him um, from where was he staying? He was in Bermuda, right? Bahamas. Bahamas, right? That's what I meant. Easy, easy mistake to make. <laughs> My mind is just yeah. <laughs> it's in the Bahamas, right? There's a lot of crypto stuff going on with uh, SBF in the Bahamas, right? They had their whole. Um, huge uh compound right didn't they have this yep giant and everyone basically lived there right yeah so they had i mean the ftx was headquartered in the bahamas but then they had this sort of group housing situation as well where you know sam bankman freed lived with like 10 other people in this luxury penthouse in the bahamas that costs like 30 million dollars um, and basically from what he said at the trial, he was like, he liked his dorm living so much that he wanted to keep doing that forever, I guess. And so they all just lived together in this big luxury complex. Such weird people. Such weird people. Yes. Really? Like, I, I don't, I don't even want to, I mean, I, I don't even, I don't even go to work in an office cause I don't want to be around my coworkers. I can't even imagine <laughs> Yeah, I lived with like 10 people at one point in college, and I don't know if I would repeat that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, but I guess uh, guess that's what makes him such a genius, right? So he's arrested finally, and um, there were charges that were dropped before the trial, right? They, they basically dropped all the campaign finance charges. Uh, basically yeah, it was just on... one charge, but yes. Oh, there was just one campaign finance charge, right? Okay, and they dropped it basically on uh, like a technicality because it wasn't part of the extradition, right? Yeah, so that's kind of been, and that's actually why five of the charges were split into a separate trial. Is they're still trying to work out with the Bahamas if it is legitimate to tack on additional charges that were not a part of the extradition agreement. And so they decided that sort of in the interests of efficiency, they would try the first seven charges, which were a part of the original extradition agreement. And then they would come back to those other five at a later date. Um, but the campaign finance charge was dropped entirely, although I'm, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it may be that it could be, re-added if they come to this agreement with the Bahamas. Right, right. So the trial begins earlier in October, uh, and um, what happens? <laughs> <laughs> give me give me the run. No, but like, uh, you know, who did they... Who did they have on the stand, basically, to talk, to testify? Because uh, uh, I, I recall seeing a number of former FTX employees, including SBF's ex-girlfriend, who was also basically the, I don't know if, she was, I guess, on paper the head of Alameda Research, but it seems like, you know, she was still, you know, reporting to SBF, who was really in charge, obviously. 
Um, yeah, that was sort of yeah. a, a bone of contention during the trial because he was trying to sort of pin things on his ex-girlfriend who was at least on paper the CEO drama. of <laughs> I know there was a lot of this like interpersonal drama in this trial. Like it on the, on its face it was a financial fraud trial, but just under the surface there was all this sort of like juicy interpersonal detail. Um, yeah, so there were a bunch of witnesses who were called uh, from the prosecution side of things. Three of them were uh, former FTX executives who had pleaded guilty to charges that were brought against them. So in addition to bringing charges against Sam Bankman-Fried, the government also had brought charges against actually four executives at FTX and Alameda Research. All four of them pleaded guilty, and three of them agreed to cooperate with the prosecution. And so those three turned up and testified against him. And those were sort of the most, um, you know, those were the star witnesses, basically. Caroline Ellison was the CEO of Alameda Research. There was Nishad Singh, who was the FTX head of engineering. And then there was Gary Wong, who was uh, the CTO of FTX, the chief technical officer. And he was sort of the coding mastermind behind a lot of this. He was a very skilled programmer from all accounts and had written a lot of the code that powered both FTX and Alameda Research. And so those three all pleaded guilty and then testified against Sam. Um, there was also a fourth executive named Brian Salem, Ryan Salem, that is, sounded like Brian when I said it, um, who pleaded guilty to, I believe, two charges. And those were actually related, I think, to the campaign finance charge because he was very involved in the political donations and was sort of a straw donor himself. Um, he pleaded guilty but did not agree to cooperate. And so he did not testify. Interesting. Uh, and also interesting, that's how you pronounce his name because for – the past yes. year, I've been called. Think I think you might have been on one of the episodes where we were calling him Ryan Salome or something like or that. Or Salami, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's spelled S A L A M E, but it is pronounced Salem, which I learned. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, but yeah. He, he, like you said, he was. But but also to be even even more precise, a lot of you know a lot of the reporting that came out about who they donated to was focused around SBF donating to a lot of. Uh, uh, Democrats, and, and he certainly did donate to a lot of Democrats, but uh, things that aren't usually mentioned, especially by, you know, people who have uh, uh, an ideological, uh, uh, you know, win to try to get over here is that um, they leave out the fact that most of his donations were actually uh, during the Democratic primaries, trying to get, uh, you know, uh, his choice of Democrat in. But then also they leave out that Ryan, Ryan Salem uh, was also, like you said, a huge political donor within FTX, and he mostly donated to Republicans. Yeah, so uh, FTX, or sorry, Sam Bankman-Fried had said at some points that he actually had wanted to donate roughly equally to Democrats and Republicans, but he felt that the optics of donating to Republicans was more challenging. And so he decided at some point that he was going to make all of his Democratic donations publicly, and then he was going to do dark donations for all the Republicans. But this picture that has been painted of him as this massive Democratic donor is not entirely true because, I mean, he did 
donate an enormous amount of money to the Democrats, but he was also donating enormous amounts to Republicans. And it seems that the real goal was not to support one party or the other, but actually to support pro-crypto candidates on both sides of the aisle. And so they would find, you know, a pro-crypto Democrat and support them or a pro-crypto Republican and support them. Um, and it had less to do with the overall, you know, party that they were affiliated with and more to do with the specific cause that FTX wanted to support. Well, Molly, are you telling me that uh, business people donate to politicians to personally enrich themselves and not no, because they, they're bringing it up be <laughs> and not because they feel strongly about some sort of cause? I'm, I'm shocked. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried were involved in this huge, you know, political influence operation where they were trying to get friendly crypto regulation. And so I think a part of that was this massive amount of spending on political candidates, which now we know was funded by customer funds from FTX. So, right. Um, right. And we should also like, because I'm trying to, I'm also, I'm trying to like balance doing this episode with like, some of this stuff I already covered, but at the same time, it's been long enough where there's probably people tuning in for the first time and hearing this stuff. SBF not only like tried to uh, sort of uh, put himself in a in in various political circles to sort of move forward crypto friendly legislation, but he also tried to position himself as this sort of like. Um, crypto angel who would swoop in and save any company that would was on was failing or failed or on the brink of failure as if like listen that's just like an anomaly in the crypto industry uh we're doing so good that we could come in and save them and then all those customers will be whole and you can see they they you know that specific company or who was running that specific company dropped the ball and this is not something that should be looked at as you know a problem with crypto as a whole right yeah especially during the summer of 2022 when there were all of these firms that were floundering basically you know a bunch of crypto lenders went bankrupt and a bunch of other companies were really on the brink of going bankrupt and so FTX was just throwing money around at that point. And Sam Bankman-Fried was, he was being called the JP Morgan of crypto because he was bailing out crypto firms, um, most notably BlockFi, which ultimately did go bankrupt after FTX went bankrupt uh, because their lifeline had been severed pretty much. But um, yeah, that came up in the trial because, you know, at that point, Alameda Research and FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried were all aware that there was this big hole in the balance sheet. And yet Sam Bankman-Fried was authorizing these massive expenditures to help bail out these companies when they really couldn't afford to be doing so. But it seems like the motivation there was both to try to steady crypto as an industry and so, you know, try to stem some of the panic that people were feeling, um, but also to open up sort of new lines of funds that Alameda Research could dip into because, um, you know, when they got access to a group like BlockFi, for example, there was a whole new you know, source of capital there that they could tap into. And so at the time, I remember people speculating around, you know, what is, why is he doing this? What's in it for him? And that later became much more clear once it was revealed what was happening under the hood at uh, FTX. 
Right. I, I feel like, you know, it's it's it really is baffling to me when people are like, oh, who could have seen this? I was reading. I was, I was just reading. I don't even think it was new. But when I was researching for the episode, I, I came across this this piece uh, again about uh, uh, one of the, the big FTX uh, in, in, uh, VC firms that invested in them, uh, Sequoia Capital, where they yeah. were wooed by him uh, on a phone call where he's basically saying like, one day he wants you to be able to. Sam Bankman Fried was like, "One day you could open up the FTX app and buy a banana," and they were like, "Whoa, no way, man! Take our money!" And then it came out later that apparently he was just like winging it on the phone on the fly while he was playing League of Legends, like he wasn't even. He was like paying half attention to this fun. Like that's how little he thought of it, and these idiots on the other line were frothing at the mouth over an uh, an FTX app where you could buy a banana with crypto. <laughs> and they later wrote this big puff piece about Sam Bankman fried where they were excited that he had been playing League of Legends. Like, they didn't think that was a bad thing. They were like, he's so smart that he was playing League of Legends when he was talking to us. Did not age well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just, just like, it doesn't make any sense because, like, even, like, Listen, you just like put to me, you just put like two and two together. Like, how is F, how would FT of FTX be able to do these things if even like the bigger players like like Binance or Coinbase wasn't even like a, a and I'm not even saying those are two companies doing it on the up and up. And they're, we're yeah. going to see for sure some uh, legal. I won't be surprised when they're uh, sitting in, on the in, in front of a judge or whatever. But like. They have a bigger, bigger market share than FTX uh, at the time, and Binance you does, at least yeah. Binance, right, right, and you never saw like the same flaunting it like SBF was doing. Like it never made sense to me where FTX. Like I, I never really came across many people who were like I'm an FTX customer in the same way people say like Yeah, my funds are with Binance or Coinbase or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, the spending definitely seemed pretty outsized compared to the supposed revenue that FTX was bringing in. You know, it was a large exchange. You know, at the time of the collapse, it was the second largest globally. Uh, So it was bringing in some money, at least. But yes, it did seem like, you know, the Super Bowl ads and the arena and the, you know, all of these expenditures that they were making were pretty extreme. Um, And that definitely came up at length in the trial around, you know, the, the absolute, you know, enormous amount of money that was going towards these marketing projects that Sam Bankman fried had to some extent spearheaded. Missed opportunity for them to not call Larry David as a witness. I mean, I would have loved to have. <laughs> or Tom Brady. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, they could have called so many people. Yeah. Oh man. A long list. I mean, some of these people, I guess Larry David, you could say he was literally warning people to not invest in FTX. Right. I feel like Larry David actually is like, even though he is one of the people who is most strongly associated with FTX as far as endorsements, I feel like if you look at the actual advertisement, he's the only one who's like, "Eh, I don't know about this. Right. Right. Tom Brady and his, his, his wife, Giselle, they were like so tied to like constantly promoting it it's yeah. it's it's you know it's it's uh ridiculous how you know how it all but went then you down. look at some of the documents that have come out and it shows i forget the exact numbers but it was like 
Tom Brady was being paid $50 million for like a couple hours of his time or something like that. It was just completely absurd. And so it's like, well, you know, for $50 million, that wasn't a bad deal. That's crazy. I mean, that's prob- that probably was the most money he's ever made from an endorsement deal for such little work. I mean, 50 yeah, million. Yeah, I would think so. Did but it, obviously uh, did... the reputational damage is a whole different thing. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll take the reputational damage for $50 million. <laughs> right, yeah. There's there's a point where you get to the FU money number. Right. And it's like, you listen, you can say whatever you want. I, I got enough money to never – what reputation do I need? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'll be on my island somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't Kevin O'Leary also paid a ridiculous amount of money? Yes. The Shark Tank guy, for people who don't know, for like a social media post or something? Yeah, and like a virtual lunch or something. It was something really weird <laughs> that was right. and, on there too. And the thing to me that's even worse about the Kevin O'Leary payment, even though it's probably much less than what Tom Brady made, although I'm sure it's still in the millions, is that like Kevin O'Leary, like Tom Brady at least took his money, promoted FTX, and when shit went down, he just sort of shut his mouth and disappeared. But Kevin yes. O'Leary was out there defending SBF over and over while this was all going down without disclosing that like he had some sort of ulterior motive here in the form of him being paid to have promoted FTX. I mean, I think it was known that he had been paid to endorse FTX at that point. But yeah, he was really going to go down with the ship. Like he was saying, even after the collapse, that he would invest in Sam and all this stuff, which, right. again, did not age well. <laughs> right. So so of the of the because to me, I think one of the reasons maybe people um, uh, thought it went by so fast and also why people were maybe baffled that he, you know, because if if you were paying attention to this to to what happened, I feel like you knew Sam Bankman-Fried was was screwed. The question was just how screwed was he, and now we know he's very screwed. Extremely. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think that's actually better. We knew he was very screwed. We just didn't know how extremely screwed he was. Yeah. Um, but like. To me, like, I think what people are missing is, like, he's sort of, like, maybe why people uh, were shocked the trial went by so fast is, like, he sort of laid it all out last year. Like, he... Right. Like, there was no really... Like, I'm sure you you could tell me, and I I would like you to, that there were some, uh, 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 you know, revealing moments during the trial that we might have not known specific details of. But the overall arcing sort of story like the 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 exactly what sbf did illegally we all knew like like it wasn't like something uh, shocking came out like oh i didn't know he did that he's oh he's screwed now like that happened yeah (laughs) yeah that that happened that all happened a year ago when he was out there writing substack newsletters and tweeting up a storm and going on various different shows and apologizing uh and even saying like oh if only if only i didn't file for bankruptcy and didn't try to i I definitely could have convinced more people to give me money so i could have kept the scheme going he obviously didn't use those exact words but that's basically what he was saying that was the effect yeah 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 so that was definitely a weird part of this trial because you know a lot of people a lot of probably more reasonable people if their company had collapsed and there was you know 
rumblings that maybe something bad had happened and that you were at the head of it, like the first thing you would do is get a lawyer and shut up. But Sam Bankman Freed, he did get lawyers, but he did not shut up even when they were telling him to. He went on this like month long media tour where he was talking to every journalist who would talk to him. He was going on Good Morning America. He went on this like New York Times uh, deal book summit. You know, he was talking, he was like going on Twitter spaces and talking to just random people online. It was like anyone who would listen to him. He even spoke to some rando named Molly White, didn't he? Yes. Briefly, he did speak (laughs) to me on one of those Twitter spaces. Yes. Several of the crypto skeptic contingent had some words with him on various Twitter spaces, actually. Um, But yeah, so. He was, for some reason that baffled pretty much every onlooker, was absolutely compelled to just talk at great length about all his mistakes and everything that had gone wrong. And he was trying to be careful to not implicate himself in crimes, but I think there's only so much you can really do there, especially when you are not a legal expert and you have what seems to be a sort of fuzzy understanding of what specifically is and is not a crime. Right. Um, especially that, being that like the the there was reporting constantly coming out while he was talking where you could sort of like match up the plain worded reporting of what he did with like his like finagling of the wording to try yeah. to explain what he did. Right. Yeah, and so that was a really weird moment in time, and he ultimately, that came back to bite him in court, because a lot of what was coming up during the trial were these interviews or recordings from his Twitter spaces even, where, you know, a recording was played at one point from one of these Twitter spaces, and, you know, I was commenting to someone else that, like, most people, especially in, you know, these days with email and social media, you know, there's some amount of past statements that a prosecutor could draw upon to potentially use against you. Like most people have some amount of that, but I don't know if anyone has the amount that Sam Bankman Freed so kindly delivered to these prosecutors because I mean, it was extremely extensive and, um, all of this stuff could be used in his eventual trial to, you know, cross-examine him, try to get him to answer, you know, okay, so when you made this statement and you knew that Alameda Research had this huge, you know, deficit that of customer funds that they had taken, you know, were you lying? What was, you know, how were you thinking about things? And it was really challenging, I think, for Sam Bankman-Fried to answer those questions because he couldn't just unsay all the things that he had said a year ago right so you you were you were in the the courtroom uh for some of the trial i believe you were there for uh uh sam bankman fried's uh time on on, you know test uh providing his own testimony and and cross-examination too right Mm -hmm. um was he because because i feel like if you if you go back and watch some of those clips and, and, and videos and podcasts from that time period it almost feels like you're watching someone who thinks like he's he's sort of like so narcissistic that he really does believe he's gonna you know he was so smart to be able to raise the funds and get away with it for as long as he did he'll talk his way out of this one too um that's what it felt like when i was watching it like the yeah. way he yeah w- was he that way on the on the stand or was like what was his demeanor how did he 
uh, and was he, you know, what was his reaction to, to some of the stuff? Was he stumped at points? Yeah. So he was very odd to watch. Um, you know, and I, I had quite a lot of familiarity with his demeanor and so I sort of knew what to expect. And, you know, so when, when a person testifies in their own defense, they are first asked a bunch of questions by their defense team. And they're very friendly questions. You know, they're trying to get him to say like that he was so overworked, he was working so hard and maybe he dropped the ball and, you know, they're lining him up for answers like that. And so that wasn't all that interesting, you know, and they were providing a lot of background. That was all stuff that, you know, someone who followed the case closely pretty much knew. The cross-examination was really the interesting part. And that went a couple of ways. Um, there was this weird thing about this trial that is very unusual in trials where they actually had to do a hearing in advance of his testimony in front of the jury where he was asked to testify on a small set of topics that they were trying to determine whether or not it was admissible. And so before he ever was cross-examined in front of the jury, he did this sort of test run where the judge was listening to him and everyone else besides the jury could listen. Um, and so we got this sort of sneak peek of his testimony. And during that hearing, I found him to be very similar to how he always had been, where he was trying to talk circles around the cross-examiner. He was you know, he would give a minute long answer. And then at the end of it, she would say, she would re-ask the question and say, you know, you never answered the question. I still need you to answer the question. Um, he was trying to offer more detail than she had asked for in the questions. You know, he was offering to try to explain things further. Um, and that was sort of the Sam Mankin-Fried we'd already, we had always known. You know, he's always been very wordy, and often very circuitous in his answers. But it seemed to me that between that hearing, I think it was on a Thursday, and the eventual cross-examination, which happened on a Monday, he had gotten some coaching from his lawyers on his approach. Because by Monday, he was a very different person when he was responding to the cross-examiner. And he pretty much was saying yes or no, or usually, I don't recall. Um, and he was still being evasive in some ways where he would really push back on the specific question that he was being asked. You know, like she would ask him, you know, did you ever say something around, you know, to the effect of all your assets are safe or something like that? And he would say, well, I don't recall saying anything in those specific words. And she would have to say, well, but in substance, did you ever say something like this? And he, you know, he would try to like, dodge the question by getting really semantic about it. Um, but he was not as long-winded as he was on that Thursday without the jury in the room. And so I think he did sort of get a talking to probably from his lawyers to just say yes or no and do not go into more detail, um, which is unlike Sam Bankman-Fried, you know, for those of us who've seen him in interviews um, prior to this date. Right. Did, you know, obviously we know how the jury reacted generally, being that they found him guilty of all the charges. But was there, you know, just being in the room and, and, and watching everything, was there, you know, in terms of any like specific reactions from the jury that was interesting in terms of like, because, you know, you have to also put into 
your mind that like you know here, here crypto is still probably not so uh, accessible to the vast majority of people still, and you have a, a jury that probably was. I mean, I'm sure from the beginning of the trial, they had to be explained every step of the way exactly what even FTX did and what crypto was and how it all worked together that way. Yeah, so a couple things on that point. Um, the first is that I was always in the sort of overflow rooms. I was never okay. in the actual courtroom itself, and that meant that I couldn't see the jury. Oh, okay. um, but I could speak to people who did see the jury, so I do okay. have sort of secondhand reporting on that. And the jury was... They did react to some things. You know, there were points where I, you know, it seemed like some of them were almost rolling their eyes when he was evading some of these questions. But I think to the most part, for the most part, they worked pretty hard to try to conceal any really overt reactions to things that he was saying. Um, and so it was a little hard to tell going into the deliberation phase how things had gone over with the jury. We just sort of had to go off of our own instincts. But obviously, you know, many of us there had a pretty strong bias going into this. And so we were all like, what if the jury is like completely on a different page and we just don't know it did not turn out to be the case. But right. um, the other thing I was going to say is um, that. So there were, they, they were explaining cryptocurrency to the jury to some extent, but it was actually a little surprising to me, the lack of depth they went into around a lot of the crypto stuff. And I think that was very intentional on the part of the prosecution team because they realized that you really don't need to know what cryptocurrency is or how it works or what a blockchain is or all these different things at a very deep level to understand what happened here. Because right. the, the core of it was really that Sam Bigman fried allowed a company to take customer funds from a different company and use them in ways that it wasn't supposed to be used for. And whether that was dollars or bitcoins kind of didn't matter that much. There were certainly portions of it that were enabled by cryptocurrency and the whole regulatory environment around cryptocurrency certainly enabled all of this. But when it came down to the actual crimes, the details didn't matter that much. And so I think it actually was not a huge deal that the jury was not particularly well-versed in cryptocurrency um, because that was all just sort of details. And I think that at some points that may have actually hurt Sam Bankman-Fried's defense because they did try to go into some more technical things around how, well, technically, you know, some of these customers were using spot margin, you know, and they were trading on leverage or they were trading futures. And so it was okay for us to use the money in the ways that, you know, we said we wouldn't. Um, and I think that as they got into more technical descriptions of things, or they, they tried to explain sort of the ins and outs of how some of this trading worked, they started to lose people a little bit. And so, um, you know, I think that the prosecution really made the right move there to just keep it simple, just talk about the fraud, and then it doesn't, you know, we don't have to try to get everyone to be intimately familiar with the ins and outs of cryptocurrency. Right. Financial fraud is financial fraud, no matter what currency exactly. you use, right? Um, yeah, so, and like, so, I think that's a, a key part of this this case, too, because some people were saying like, oh, well, it's cryptocurrency, it's not well regulated, they're not going to be able to, you know, try him on any you know, criminal car charges. And it's like, well, 
wire fraud and money laundering kind of apply no matter what you're doing, you know, so, and that's, that's what they ended up charging him with. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like there there's a, a large contingent of like cryptocurrency people who, 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 who act that way, who like, go through life thinking that, oh, there's, there's so little laws around this that we can just, uh, you know, pump and dump a coin. Right. We could uh, do all sorts of shady, illegal activity. We could sell to ourselves and say that, oh, look, I, I, I sold this thing for, you know, this NFT for this much money, pumping up its price on the market. And, you know, they, they think they could do all this sort of fraudulent activity and get away with it because it's crypto and not like right. U.S. dollars. Yeah, that's been super common. And then, you know, in the past couple of years, we've seen cases come out that are charging people over insider trading or market manipulation, you know, using laws that have been around for forever now, far longer than cryptocurrency. And people are like, oh, my God, I, I didn't think this would apply, you know, but right. it, it really doesn't matter because the laws are intentionally written to be quite broad so that, you know, it doesn't you, you don't just create a new type of asset class and then circumvent the whole thing which a lot of people were like oh my god we thought we found the magic trick to <laughs> evading <laughs> you mean i you can't know. scam people with scam coin and get away with it damn right. I, <laughs> I too was shocked so. so let's let's actually jump back for a second i, I, I did want to touch on you, you had mentioned the uh, the three former ftx uh employees who, who did testify at the trial was there anything particularly interesting? You know, I'm sure there was something interesting just with the – I could only imagine the, the – I, I know you weren't there for this, but I can only imagine the intensity in the room when Carolyn Ellison was on the stand <laughs> looking at SBF, their eyes meeting for the first time in months after their, their tryst. In, <laughs> it was actually funny because – she at the beginning of every testimony they have to ask the person to identify like to pick him out in the room and it took her like a minute to find him which was really funny like everyone was like what was that about but like she couldn't find him at first um potentially because he looks pretty different from when what he looked like a year or so ago really he looks different. um what's that he looks different yeah, he's lost a fair bit of weight. Um, he's got a haircut now, which <laughs> is, he, is he chiseled like one of those courtroom? Was that a real courtroom photo that went around? No, was a joke, that was right? an AI. <laughs> yeah, that was AI. The the like Superman looking. Uh, most of the courtroom sketches I have found are actually extremely unflattering. Uh, oh, I let feel me like... tell the worst I saw was of, I mean, I actually made me feel bad for her. That Caroline Ellison yes. sketch. Oh my God, it's like the courtroom so... sketch artist has a grudge. Like, it's not flattering. <laughs> but, um. It almost looked like a caricature. It looked like something, like, someone yeah. went to a boardwalk and uh, sat down at one of those things. <laughs> right. And, like, maybe she didn't boots. tip well or something. And right. so they made her look really bad. Yeah. Yeah. So, um,. Yeah, he does look different. He So he used to have this really sort of wild curly hair that always looked like he just rolled out of bed and had like slept on it or whatever. Um, that is much shorter now. And so it's like cropped short. It's probably shorter even than your hair. Um, and he was wearing a suit, which is unusual for him. You know, in, in, in better times, he would always just be wearing a T-shirt and shorts. And so I think it just took her a second to find him. And he may also have been like kind of behind someone or something. But it was just this weird moment where people were like, can she not find him? 
Did she call out like, where are you, my love? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. And then, then they were, they asked her to describe something he was wearing to like double check that she had identified the right person. This is also something they just do. I'm not really sure why. I'm sure it's some sort of legal thing, but she was like, um, a suit. You know, it's like, right. okay, well, that describes every male person in this courtroom, but... It seems, um, it seems like something from, like, a, a bygone era where, I guess, like, people were traveling to the courtroom by, like, horse, and they could have, like, had to change out of their, like, old, yeah. rugged, wild west clothes, and <laughs> I don't know. It just yeah, feels like really like old school or something. Yeah, or they, like, snuck in a Sam Bankman freed body double, or I don't know. Right. Yeah, so... Wow. Anyway, that was kind of a weird moment. But yeah, generally speaking, regarding the testimony of the co-conspirators, I actually thought that was some of the most interesting um, parts of the trial because, you know, like we said, Sam Bankman-Fried went on this media tour where he was talking to everyone who would listen and, and describing in great detail the, you know, what happened or what he said happened at FTX, whereas there was just silence from all three of these people because at this point they were cooperating with the government. They were negotiating plea deals. They, it would have been very unwise for them to be speaking out in the way that Sam Bankman fried was. I mean, it was unwise for him to be doing that as well. But, um, and so, you know, we didn't, we, this was the first we had heard from any of them in, you know, the time since the collapse. And so we were able to hear, their side of the story to some extent, um, which was noticeably different at points from Sam Bankman Freed's side of the story, which was the only side of the story that we had really been hearing, besides, of course, what investigative journalists were finding and then some of the details that were coming out in um, bankruptcy court. And then, of course, the the allegations in the indictment. And so that was really interesting just to sort of understand how things kind of worked at the company, uh-huh. how the fraud was being perpetrated, you know, the extent to which Sam Bankman fried was leading it versus just sort of a, per, you know, a side character in it was not super clear. And so um, that all I thought was really interesting. Right. I feel like, I feel like that was one of the takeaways from the trial for me, just how obviously at the center of all of it, he was. Like, cause, cause, cause he had right. been trying to, to throw, uh, blame towards Caroline Ellison, which by the way, did she, was it clear that she held a grudge, uh, <laughs> when she was up there? I feel like, you know, they, they had, a, I they, had a, they had a big fight. Like, he tried to basically throw it all on her cause she was yeah. technically the head of Alameda research, which is technically where the, right. the misuse of the funds was happening. Um, but then, like you had mentioned, like, um, you know, he was very clearly at the trial uh, found at the center of it. And I think if I recall, and you would know better than me, obviously, the 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 the, the um, testimony from the former the, the CTO, uh, the Gary engineer, Gary, he, that was really important because he was basically, if I remember correctly, told to put to, to code things for SBF to go in and use uh, uh, to a- be able to access uh, funds, yeah. customer funds. Like it was sp- explicitly asked by SBF t- for this to be coded into the system for him. Yeah, all of the FTX employee witnesses directly implicated Sam Bankman fried in not just being aware of the fraud, but leading it. Um, and yeah, Sam Bankman fried did 
tried to throw Caroline Ellison under the bus. He also tried to throw Nishad Singh under the bus at some point. Which one um, was he? What was his role again at FDX? He was the head of engineering. Um, okay. So he was, you know, Gary Wong was the CTO, but he was kind of a sole coder. He wasn't like leading other engineers, whereas Nishad Singh was sort of managing the engineering team. Okay. Got it. Um, and. Yeah, it was interesting to watch Sam Bankman-Fried try to throw these other people under the bus because really all he had in terms of a defense was trying to introduce doubt in the prosecution's version of events, which was this very cohesive story. They laid it out really well. They were very good at like ordering the witnesses so that they were telling this sort of understandable story and not just going piecemeal. Um, and so by the end of the prosecution's case, you had a pretty clear idea of what they said happened at FTX. And instead of trying to present their own version of that, the defense team was really just trying to undermine the prosecution's case because, like I said, I don't think they had a good alternative story that a juror could latch onto and say, oh, okay, this is how everything fell apart without Sam Bankman-Fried having any criminal role in it. Um, but because of that, it meant that when you were sort of, if you did this sort of mind exercise to try to play out what it would have meant for some of these people to be lying, it just made no sense. Like he, at one point tried to claim that he had no idea that Nishad Singh had backdated all of these transactions that had the effect of, um, basically creating 50, uh, $50 million in revenue for FTX that had not previously been recorded. And so when Sam Bankman fried was trying to say that like Nishad Singh just came to him and was like, fix the problem, boss, you don't need to worry about it. And Sam Bankman fried was like, okay, and didn't ask any other questions. You find yourself trying to go down this thought exercise of like, so Nishad Singh just decided for some reason to do fraud and lie to auditors for no personal benefit, he wasn't making any money off of it. And just because he liked Sam Bankman-Fried, I guess, but he didn't tell Sam Bankman-Fried that he was doing this. So it's not like he was trying to get in his good graces. He wasn't supposedly instructed by Sam Bankman-Fried. So like, what would have possessed this man to do this? You know, there's just no plausible alternative explanation um, which I assume is why the jury ended up believing the other people in this case, because theirs actually made sense. You know, it's like, oh, I can see why someone who is willing to do illegal things would do that because it would be very profitable for them or, you know, for some other reason. Um, and so that was that was a really interesting part of the case as well. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, once they throw you under the bus, I mean, not, you can't even say that because they didn't throw him under the bus. They just truthfully he explained exactly what his role was but once they did that uh i mean i i felt like i knew it was over for, for svf yeah um, i mean if if that didn't do it do we do we know why ryan salem didn't uh i mean there's no i'm guessing he got a, he got a, a, a less of a deal i i'm assuming for not agreeing to help i have no idea what 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 do what do do are the the people who um who testified? Are they looking at jail time or what? Yeah. So yeah. the people who testified 
part of a major part of why someone would testify is because they're hoping to get a lighter sentence right. as a result of it. So if you cooperate in the case and you tell the truth and you're helpful to the government, you will get what's called a 5K letter, which is where the prosecution writes to the judge and says, hey, this person was helpful to us consider that when you make your sentencing decision. And so both, I think, Caroline and Nishad said on the stand that they were hoping to get no jail time. I don't know if that's realistic, especially for Caroline. Well, both of them actually have, I think, six and seven charges apiece or something like that. Um, so I don't know if cooperation can buy them no jail time, but it would it can probably buy them a substantially lighter sentence um, Ryan Salem, because he did not cooperate, is likely looking at a harsher sentence as a result, but he was also charged with fewer crimes. I think he only had two charges, maybe. So um, I'm really curious. I really don't have any guesses on what their sentencing will look like. Again, I would be surprised if Caroline and Nishad got zero jail time, but I could see it being, you know, a couple of years or something like that. Again, totally uninformed guess. Um, but for Ryan Salem, I really don't know because I really just don't know, you know, to what extent not cooperating can, you know, screw you over as far as jail time. It, did it come up during trial just how many people within FTX knew what was going on? Like clearly those three knew. That's why they were testifying. But how like how deep was it known throughout the company exactly how illegal? It seemed like it was. It seemed like it was pretty contained to some of the upper leadership. Um, they did call some former FTX employees who were not had not been charged with crimes and who testified to basically only learning about the fraud, you know, as FTX collapsed. So one of them was a software engineer named Adam Udidia, who he was testifying with a grant of immunity. Um, but it didn't seem like he really needed it. It seemed like maybe he was just being really cautious and wanted to have one. Um, and he basically said that like, there was something that happened in like the summertime in June, 2022, when he learned that maybe there was a like issue with the liabilities that were more than they should have been, but he didn't think there was anything fraudulent happening. And then he said that later on, he, when he did learn as FTX was collapsing, that all of these customer funds had been misused, he said basically he resigned the next day. And so, you know, he had no idea and he bailed as soon as he found out. And there was another person, a, a lawyer for FTX named Can Sun, who testified and said pretty much the same thing that, you know, throughout his time there, he was, at least according to him, being lied to extremely flagrantly about all of these different things and so he was just you know working based on what he had been being told which to him seemed above board and then again when everything fell apart and he realized that that was not the case he immediately quit and i guess went to the government and you know started cooperating right um so yeah to, to my understanding at least it seemed like it was fairly well you know well kept secret within some of the top folks there but it also seems like some people at least could have known if they tried to so it's it's a little hard to say but um yeah 
Is there any guesses? Obviously, uh, we don't know for sure because they're protected. You know, Coindesk isn't going to share who their source was. They even know. <laughs> but do we have any idea, even an inkling of who was the person who who basically set set the, uh, you know, <laughs> pushed over that first domino and sent the, uh, the Alameda, Alameda books to uh, Coindesk? Yeah, I don't know. And actually, the funny thing about that balance sheet is that um, – it was so part of what came out during the trial is that it was the spreadsheet that was entered into evidence that had Alameda's financial statements. And then there were seven other tabs where Caroline Ellison had prepared alternative balance sheets where she had done some sort of creative accounting, you could say, to hide the true crisis in Alameda Research's financials. And so there were these falsified balance sheets and it actually turns out that the balance sheet that went to Coindesk was one of these falsified balance sheets that had been created to try to make everything look better at Alameda Research but even that was enough to spark this panic that you know everything was not fine at Al Alameda Research and I guess it had not, for some reason, previously raised red flags for lenders who were getting access to these balance sheets, but it probably should have. Um, but yeah, it's not, I, th I would say it's not known at this point who leaked the specific balance sheet to Coindesk. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anyone other than, I assume, some people at Coindesk really know that at this point. It, it wouldn't even surprise me if if those people didn't even look at those when they were like the it, it, it lending or investors, whatever. They 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 definitely like, you know, that that stuff probably gets uploaded from all these companies, and they never probably do their due diligence and look at this stuff. They they totally go off of like you know like what we saw with. Uh, uh, Sequoia just basically yeah. vibes, vibes, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they certainly should have been. Um, but yeah, it, it just, I mean, apparently it was not raising red flags, even though when the general public saw this balance sheet, it was like, oh my God, what is happening? <laughs> right, right. So we got basically SBF uh, looking at, uh, you know, like you said, we, we don't know exactly how long. The, 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 the sentencing is going to be in a few months, right? Next year, isn't it? Hard to say. Um, it's been tentatively scheduled for March, but if that second trial happens, it could be pushed back mm -hmm. to after the trial. Um, and then there's also the question of appeals. I'm sure he's going to appeal the verdict and things like that. So it's hard to say exactly when it'll happen, but tentatively March 28 of 2024 is when it is scheduled. Right. I was going to just next ask you about those appeals. I mean, obviously, that's just something that people do. Um, if anything, to try to just uh, buy time and, and see if they could uh, 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 just pull away at even like uh, one or some of the charges just to get, right. as, you know, I, I don't think anyone. No, I shouldn't say that because clearly there are a lot of people who think this. Uh, <laughs> I don't think anyone with any sense thinks he is looking to appeal to get away scot-free like there's gonna be an appeal right. to be like oh no we were wrong completely sbf yeah. how could we do this to you but like what what are what is do we, do we have any idea of what they're going to um argue here that in terms of what they're you know going to say in their appeals 
Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, there are a couple of things that they've sort of look like they're laying the groundwork for appeals. You know, throughout the trial, we were seeing legal filings and stuff that made it look like they were sort of getting all their ducks in a row in case they wanted to appeal on a couple of different grounds. Um, one of them was on Sam Bankman frieds ability to prepare for the trial. And so there were all, there was this flurry of legal filings partway through the trial, um, or partway, sorry, not through the trial, but partway through the period leading up to the trial where Sam Bankman fried had been out on house arrest for several months and then ultimately was screwing around so much and like leaking documents to the New York Times and trying to use a VPN and stuff like this that um, the judge ultimately remanded him to jail. And so he spent the last couple of months before his trial in jail, which made it substantially more difficult for him to prepare for his trial because he does not have unfettered access to a computer there, especially a computer with internet access. Um, he can't just meet with his legal team anytime he wants. You know, he's very much operating on the jail's schedule. And so they were making all of these complaints to the judge that they weren't getting, you know, enough access to him, that he wasn't getting enough access to an internet connected laptop, that he wasn't getting his required Adderall prescriptions. And so he couldn't focus well enough to prepare his defense, things like that. Um, so that's one possible avenue, although I think that that might be unlikely because at one point the judge straight up asked them, like, if you don't feel like you are able to prepare for this trial, do you want to request a delay? You know, do you want to push it off a little bit so that you have more time to prepare? And they said no. And so, you know, if they try to appeal this, I think the, the obvious reply will be well like you had the opportunity to ask for more time and you didn't so that seems a little bit dead in the water to me um there's also possible avenues around like the way the prosecution went about their case there was one point where one of the defense attorneys objected to a line of questioning during this evidentiary hearing that they did outside of the presence of the jury, where he said something like, this is like a deposition, um, which I was hearing uh, at least one lawyer say sounded a lot like something you would say if you were preparing to appeal based on, you know, someone that, you know, a, a, the prosecution doing the wrong kind of questioning, basically. Um and then there's been some people who feel like Judge Kaplan expressed bias while he was overseeing this case and that he was too friendly to the prosecution's requests while he was too, uh, you know, willing to deny the defense's requests. And so maybe there's something there. But from everything I've seen, it doesn't seem like there's a particularly strong avenue to appeal ahead of him. Right. They should just make the classic... Uh, argument that any crypto person makes when you try to uh, criticize crypto or debate them on crypto is just you don't understand crypto. You, you don't, don't get the blockchain. It. You don't get the blockchain. How, uh, Your Honor, dismiss this case. The jury did out. not understand blockchain. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> case I was dismissed. personally hoping that he would. And may, this could still happen. I still have hope. That during their, so when it comes to sentencing, his team will have the opportunities to submit a document basically making the argument that he get 
some specific sentence, obviously a much lighter one than I'm sure the prosecution will ask for. Um, and I'm still hoping that they will try to argue that the enhancements based on the amount of money that was lost are invalid because crypto tokens are just made up and they don't actually have any real value. <laughs> like I would love to see someone just do a full 180 on their strongly held crypto beliefs when it comes right. down to trying to get out of a jail sentence. <laughs> right. I mean, I wouldn't put it past them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. This is, this has been, this, this whole saga has been crazy. And like, um, I guess it was sort of like we were talking about earlier, like uh, sort of uh, anticlimactic. But at the end of the day, he's gonna get his his uh, he's gonna get his just desserts. I mean, the dude is gonna pay for what he did. Um, did you see some of these um, uh, 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 articles, or maybe it wasn't articles? Maybe it was just like a few tweets that I saw, but from like I don't remember who it was from. It was some maybe it was a VC or something where it was like. Um, uh, listen, uh, for for these sort of white collar crimes, he should be looking at a max like seven to eight years. Anything more than that is too much. And listen, I'm all for prison reform, and I think people should go away for uh, as little time as possible. And most people should not even be spending time in jail and prison to begin with. Uh, that doesn't usually, for me... <laughs> translate to white collar crimes. <laughs> I'm not really worried about white collar criminals having the book thrown at them. I mean, um, especially being that um, from my understanding, the recidivism rates for white collar crime are very high. People who commit these sorts of crimes usually actually just get out and, and go right back to scamming and scheming. They don't. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't surprise yeah, I mean, me. One thing that has been really fascinating to me throughout this is that Sam Bingman freed, as far as I can tell, still doesn't think he did anything right. wrong. Right. Um, maybe he will start to try to show some sort of, you know, regret or something like that once it's, you know, now that everything's over, uh, maybe after an appeal fails or something like that, and he's just trying to impact his eventual sentencing. But it doesn't seem like he believes that he did anything wrong. And I don't know if that's just because he's trying to, you know, say that because he's trying to get off on the Senate. Like, it seems like he really doesn't think what he did was wrong. Um, did they talk which to makes any... me wonder to, to what extent, you know, he would do this again, maybe. Right. Did they talk to any, I'm, I'm sure they did, but um, I can't recall. Did they talk to any FTX customers who lost money? Yeah, the first witness they brought up was an FTX customer who had lost, uh, I want to say it was around $100,000 on FTX. It was a guy who was trading, it was like cocoa bean futures or something was his like actual job, but he had gotten into crypto trading on FTX and lost a significant amount of money. Right. Not so sure if I feel bad for that guy, but, but nonetheless... <laughs> Right. Yeah, it was, a, it was an interesting choice of customer. I think they were, I think they were trying to go for the fact that like, he was a fairly knowledgeable person in finance, because he worked in derivatives trading. And so, and even he couldn't figure out that, you know, things were weird at FTX. But yeah, it wasn't the most like, I don't know, compassionate right person yeah. they they had yeah. at one point tried to bring a landlord who evicts who... families with small children 
Well, they, they wanted to bring a customer who was a Ukrainian who had put his money onto FTX when the Russian invasion began. Okay. And then it all became inaccessible to him. Um, I'm I'm not sure if that they weren't allowed to bring him or if they ultimately just decided not to. Uh, there was some back and forth over whether or not they'd be able to and if he would be allowed to testify over video because it's hard for obvious reasons for him to just fly to New York. Right. Um, but I think that was sort of their thought at bringing someone who would have, you know, pulled at the heartstrings of the jury a little bit more. Right. Maybe, maybe uh, someone on the prosecution when uh, researching, having that person on someone just Googled the words FTX Ukraine and saw the conspiracy theories. And they were like, you know what? Let's just not, let's yeah, not get it's into not worth inviting it. Yeah. <laughs> For people yeah. who don't know, I've, I, I've done ep an episode on this. There are all these crazy – you can go back and listen to it, obviously. But in short, there are all these crazy right-wing conspiracy theories about how uh, Ukraine and the Democrats were working together to funnel money through FTX to get money to Joe Biden and Democrats for the 2020 election. It is so easily – even if you it doesn't sound outright ludicrous to you on its face, it's so easily debunked. You can uh, check out the episode, or even Google it yourself, and find all the debunks if you don't if you don't trust me. <laughs> yeah, some of the conspiracy theories are pretty out there. I was talking to um, Cass Piancy and Bennett Tomlin about the whole Joe Biden is gonna pardon Sam Bankman Fried, and it's like this is on the same level as like the Earth is flat. You know, it's so detached from reality at this point that it's like hard to even discuss. Right. Like, what would he have to gain from it? Nothing. Like, exactly. Like, like, e like even if you think like Sam Bankman Freed was in on it with Joe Biden and the Democrats and he was funneling them this money and he was helping elect them while he was getting this big payday. Even if you believe that, even if you think that's 100 percent truth. Sam Bankman Freed, in, in that, even in that thinking, uh, that conspiratorial thinking, he is no longer of any use to them. He has no access to money. FTX is done. <laughs> Some people believe that he has like crypto squirreled away somewhere, um, which I believe is how they generally answer that particular line of questioning. But yeah, I mean, I think just the like reputational damage to Joe Biden, if he were to just up and pardon Sam Bankman-Fried, especially before an election year, is like unfathomable that he would do that. Right. Um, but and also, yeah, e even if you believe he has this money uh, uh, put away, and I could uh, listen, I could. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I could believe that he has some quiet wallet out there with maybe a few mil. It wouldn't be shocking. This is cryptocurrency yeah. after all. But why would he use that money then to give it to Joe Biden? It's so little the amount. Like he would, if he got pardoned, he would run away with it, obviously. Like he's of no yeah. use to Joe Biden. And he has no political influence. Right. Yeah, it just doesn't yeah, really Yeah, it doesn't make, make any sense. Right. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. I mean, you would have to think, you would have to have no concept of how much money is like money. <laughs> like you would have to right. not see, like you'd have to think $1 million is the same as like $1 billion to think this. Like, <laughs> Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Uh, 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 now I got to look deeper into some of these conspiracies. This, I have, I'm not so familiar with the, the post SBF arrest ones where he's going to get... <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> pardoned by Biden. It's just I I just enjoy watching them sort of shift as the you know it's like oh he's not going to get convicted and then he gets convicted on all counts and so now they're like oh um I guess he's going to get pardoned yeah pardoned okay right right, <laughs> right. well I can't wait for the same things to happen and for him to literally be like cuffed and taken to jail I can't wait to see the ones there he's they're they're digging a secret tunnel underground from yeah the, the dnc themselves <laughs> all those all those democratic staffers right now are digging away under yeah. <laughs> under the jail right. oh, man. Uh, well molly this is oh before before we end this episode was there anything that i i didn't touch upon from the trial that you think is, is something that should be should be mentioned or do you think we we pretty much got it all oh i mean there's a million things we could have talked really? about but yeah, yeah i mean yeah, it was a long, it was a long trial with I'm a lot try, of I'm trying to remember. Turns, but... hit, me, hit me with one thing we didn't talk about then, and we'll we'll end it there. Um, well, I I enjoyed hearing them talk. I'm actually working on an article about this, um, so stay tuned for that. But there was a specific incident that they talked about that I found really interesting because oh. we knew that the incident had happened, but we didn't know much in the way of details. Does this have to do and with it, the polycule? It did not. <laughs> Thank God. In fact, the word polycule was never uttered in that courtroom, much to my delight. Um, so, yeah, no, it had to do with an ex Molly's working on a juicy article about some polycule details. Thank <laughs> yeah, no, thank God. Um, no, it had to do with an actual, it was a theft from FTX that happened in 2021 that they did not disclose to anybody, but the Financial Times actually reported it shortly after the FTX collapse in like December of 2022, I think. Um, and what had happened is a trader had taken out a position with cryptocurrency tokens, including one called MobileCoin, and manipulated the market on these very illiquid tokens so that they were able to borrow a substantial amount of real collateral against it and then just abandon the manipulated tokens and make off with this collateral that they had quote unquote borrowed. And we learned that it was a theft to the tune of $800 million, which is the top monetary amount on my web three is going just great leaderboard now for any hack. Um, there, there are other numbers that are higher that have to do with like full collapses of exchanges and stuff. But like, as far as a hack, this is the highest one I've ever seen. Um, and we learned a little bit more about what happened there, which actually involved Sam Bankman fried disabling the exchanges risk management functions to try to manually keep an eye on this account to keep them from exploiting FTX. And ultimately screwing it up so bad that his exchange suffered an almost billion dollar loss in 2021, which he then tried to hide by having Alameda Research taken on um, with the thought process being that their balance sheet was a little bit less public because they didn't have the type of investors that FTX did. Um, but I thought that was really fascinating to hear described in court because we had sort of known that this had happened, but didn't really know how it happened. And up until 
he testified about it. I assumed that it had to do with a bug on the exchange. And then for some reason, he like offered the information that, oh, no, 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 it wasn't a bug. It was me. Um, so that was probably one of the most interesting moments for me during the, during the trial was listening to him explain this hack to the jury. Wow. I'm glad I asked you if there's anything we, we didn't touch because. <laughs> yeah, there were, there were sort of interesting moments that like one. that. Yeah. Wow. So that one was, it, the amount of it was sort of not well known. It, I'd heard numbers ranging from like a hundred million to like a billion it was really just estimates hold on who, who knew it would be closer to that latter end than, <laughs> than the yeah. former right yeah exactly um yeah 800 million dollars is a lot of money <laughs> um and so to hear that just sort of bandied about in court was pretty extreme yeah wow we might have to do another episode another day with just all the little tidbits that uh, are maybe not so relevant to like SBF going away, but came out during the trial. This is. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, for sure. Well, Molly, I'll be on the uh, everyone should be on the lookout for that uh, piece. It'll be in your newsletter, right? Uh, it's actually going to be in a, in a third party publication, but I will ah. link to it in my newsletter. Yeah. OK, perfect. And why don't you tell everybody where do they could find that newsletter? Because I want to make sure I get it right, too. I don't want to say <laughs> it and, and, and say the wrong domain or whatever. Yeah, it is newsletter.mollywhite.net. There we go. And Web3 is going great. Still uh, the the best resource online if you want just a, you know, a, a, a summary every day of the craziest shit that happens in crypto. <laughs> like it's, you can literally There's always just new stuff. go there any day and just look at the top stuff. And like, I mean, right now we've got <laughs> Yuga Labs, the, the people behind Board API Club, but with two great stories from them. Uh, their social media lead resigning after racist and anti-Semitic tweets resurface. And then also uh, Bored Ape NFT holders going blind after attending <laughs> attending one of their Bored Ape uh, events uh, in Hong Kong this year. Uh, it really couldn't – you couldn't make this shit up. Like this – like Honestly. how is – like there needs to be like a Veep style like show about crypto. Like we're just yeah. like – just like every once in a while, I'm like, you know, someone should really do like a crypto version of The Onion. And then I'm like, you know what? Absolutely not. There's no way that you could come up with anything more ridiculous than the actual headlines that come out of this industry. Right, right. Maybe you, uh, the HBO show Silicon Valley, they should be like a crypto only version of that show. Like like about crypto <laughs> founders and, and oh my I, God, it would be. I bet there will be in like five or 10 years. <laughs> right, right. You don't even need to really explain crypto to people. You just need to like get the basics down where it's just like complete, complete bullshit. Honestly. Yeah, <laughs> That's all you right. need. You got You got a bunch of bullshit artists uh, who are tech founders, which, um, you know, don't necessarily need to be crypto founders to be bullshit artists in the tech scene. But <laughs> there you go. I There's mean, a lot of opportunity. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh, God. Oh, God. And it's just, you know, the, uh, you know, I, I had taken a, a short hiatus from uh, doing a scam economy for, for a little bit just to just to, um, you know, 
working on a lot of different things and just need I was before I got burnt out needed to slow down something before picking it back up obviously we're back um but you know I was like do I when when this was all going down and crypto was becoming less relevant in the mainstream I was like I got to do some episodes on the the next thing that obviously people are jumping on which is like you know AI is the big thing yeah. right now and like obviously I I do think that AI has more relevant utility than any crypto project i've seen but the whole like hype machine behind it is the same scammy bullshit like you know people trying to present that this it's going to change the world it's going to take over this this and that these people are going to lose their job there's going to be a new a new uh bringing all these new billionaires who control everything now it's like the same it's the same same old story from the tech world as usual Yep, robots are going to replace us, part 1,000. <laughs> right, right. Well, they can't. robots can't replace us crypto critics and podcasters and newsletter writers uh, because they just don't have the, the extreme talent that is ne- necessary to do what we do. <laughs> <laughs> if I do say so myself. <laughs> right, right. Well, Molly, thank you so much. Always a pleasure having you on. Uh uh, oh, where can people, uh, you know, the newsletter, the website, but in terms of like, you know, social media and stuff, where can people find you? Uh, I am Molly0XFFF on most social networks, including Twitter, which is probably still my main one, regrettably. Uh, and then I also have a website, mollywhite.net, that links to everything else that might be important. So There you go. All right, Molly, thank you so much for uh, joining me on on uh, Scam Economy's big comeback slash the big <laughs> SBF trial episode. Really appreciate it. Could not have done this episode without you. Happy to be here. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of the show. And for regular listeners, I guess I can say uh, thanks for your patience. Scam Economy is back. Took a little bit of a hiatus with the show. You know, I have another show called uh, Doomed, which you could check out at doomedcast.com. And I also have regular weekly appearances on other shows, like the weekly leftist political talk show, Leftist Mafia, and The Majority Report. And the crypto industry, while definitely not dead and still bubbling at the surface, ready to jump back into the mainstream, it has been on sort of a lull over the past few months. But there's still plenty to talk about in the crypto world, as well as the tech industry as a whole, like AI, metaverse, that all fits well within the scam economy. To support this show, go to patreon.com slash mattbinder, subscribe to the YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mattbinder, follow the Twitch channel at twitch.tv slash mattbinder, and of course, Go to scameconomy.com for all the links to the audio version of this show. And while you're at your favorite podcast platform, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify, leave a review if you can. With all that said, I'll see you all next time on The Scam Economy. Scam Economy.